All right, welcome to Real Talk with Real Life. I'm your host, Ryan Riggs, and today uh, on this episode, we are going to talk about uh, something that I that I have a lot of, um, I'm just excited about, you know, some of the stuff that's happening uh, in our community in regards to legislation uh, that is before the General, General Assembly right now that is going to tremendously uh, impact the folks that we, that we help primarily dealing with uh, histories of incarceration and substance use disorder. And so on today's episode, we have uh, the Real Life Director, Dr. Sarah Scarborough. Uh, we also have uh, True Recovery Director, or True Recovery Founder and Director, David Rook, who is also a uh, the President of the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences. And also we have Anthony Grimes, who is co-founder and president of the War Foundation, and is also a uh, sitting member of the Virginia Association of Recovery Residents. How's everybody doing today? We're all doing well. All right. So, you know, to start this off, you know, Sarah has a lot of experience uh, in dealing with the legislative end. So, um, you know, uh, I'm going to pass it off to her and let her, you know, kind of get this thing started about, um, you know, to talk about a little bit about the legis- legislative process and some of these things that we got going on now. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Hey, David and Anthony, good to sit here with you guys today. Um, I think much of our society and much of our community does not understand the legislative process. They do not understand how bills even become laws. Um, And that's critical because the laws are clearly something that affect us every single day in everything that we do. And so not to know and not to be familiar is really a detriment. Um, This General Assembly session, there are a lot of bills which are proposed laws that are up for debate, Um, many that will affect uh, Virginians as a whole, but especially looking at the recovery community. And so it's critical that those in this field, whether they um, are working professionals in it or in recovery themselves or just have some type of passion towards it, it's critical that they stand up. Um, every year there are there is legislation that deals with recovery and criminal justice and Sometimes it goes through, but more often it does not. And it's because there's not big enough of a voice to support it. And often the legislators or the ones that are making the laws, they don't want to be pinned with being soft on crime. And so not know, not doing their homework and not having their knowledge, they'll vote against legislation just so that they can say that they have stood hard on crime. Um, and, and frankly, it is a detriment and it's ignorant. And so that's why folks need to stand up and get involved so that this does not continue to happen. Um, so that's just a little bit of the background before we dive into what's out there. You, you guys want to add anything to that? Well, I want to, I want to, this is David here. Uh, likewise, Sarah, nice to be on with you and Anthony. Anthony, thank you, Ryan, for, for having us on here today. Uh, I, you know, it just, yeah, a lot of it is ignorance. Um, it's not understanding the population that we serve and, you know, and, and reintroducing these guys to and girls to the communities, you know, a lot of the, all the laws are to their detriment and kind of put them behind the, the a ball for lack of, of a better term, you know? And we, so a lot of the stuff that we advocate for would, you know, change that and help us get these people back into society and productive members of our, of our communities. Mm-hmm. Anthony, you got anything? Uh, I got some stuff for later on. Okay. 
So yeah, so I'll just add before we uh, move forward, man, and, and and start discussing these uh these specific bills, is um you know I think historically people look at it as you know a recovery or a person with incarcerated criminal justice uh, issue, but ultimately these people are, are are part of a bigger whole, which is our community, right? Like so our our community, and then even bigger our society. So. Um, you know, while people will act like these things don't really affect them, they really affect all of us um, and, and our entire community and our entire society. So, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I'm just excited that, you know, for the years that I've been affected by this and also for the years that I've been um, able to to work with you, people like you guys um, and, and Sarah uh, on advocating for for some for some change that some of these things are. Um, you know, they're, they're seeming to gain a little bit more more momentum. Like I was looking on one of these bills on here and it's being sponsored by a whole lot of delegates and a whole lot of people. So, mm-hmm. um, so anyway, so specifically, first I want to talk about um, a little bit about uh, House Bill 2045, which is the certification of recovery residences through a credential and body to ensure the nationally recognized standards uh, are met. So, David, you being the um, the uh, president or chairman of the board of of the of VAR, um, you want to give us a little background on this bill and kind of about what this is about. Right, I will. Um, so, well, first a little bit on Virginia Association of Recovery Residences. It was it's been a fledgling organization for about uh, seven years now, um, and we've been a, we've been a group or a body of. Uh, mostly made up uh, of recovery home operators for the last little while. And we have, uh, we've really been focusing on standardized living for, for the people in, in recovery homes. So the whole idea behind the national standard is that we create a, a, you know, good ethical practices for running recovery homes and that we create safe and supportive environments for those living in the recovery homes. This bill um, is generated out by the Department of Behavioral Health and Development Service, sponsored by Delegate Hurt, uh, Hurst. Um, and it, it really is the beginning of kind of a credentialing through the state to say that these recovery houses meet the standard. Our hopes are that the state, when this law goes into effect, that the state will look to the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences for as a credentialing body, and then we will credential people meeting the national standard. Um, you know, look looking far ahead. One of the things that we hope to be able to do with this with this type of legislation is come back and incentivize membership or certification. You know, as in if those people with state licensing counselors, treatment centers, uh, maybe even probation and parole, saying that you know, we're not going to release funds or we're not going to be able to refer to organizations that don't meet the standard. So the idea is that we protect the group of people that we serve. Okay. So Anthony, as a, as a, a, a residential service provider, how does that, um, how does this play into, you know, and and not to mention, I know you've been a very active member of our, in fact, um, you know, you, you've, you've kind of been on the front lines with that you and Kate, Uh, how does this, uh, you know, how does this relate to what you do with war and, you know, how may it affect the war foundation or, uh, you know, the central Virginia or Virginia region as a whole? Well, it's very big. Um, you know, first off, you know, when I look at people with, um, substance abuse disorder, the disease of addiction, um, recovery residences are at the front line of that. And, um, 
you know, I, I don't view these people that we serve as, you know, I don't view the state having a law enforcement problem. We have a health problem in this state. They declared that the opioid epidemic has brought on a national crisis. So when I think about a national crisis, I think about we don't need to take steps in the right direction. We need to take leaps and bounds. The time to act is now. And, you know, I was looking at some information on the National Council for Behavioral Health, and they've partnered with NAR in adopting, you know, how we do that. And, and it talks about that the National Council recommends that states support efforts to adopt a common definition of recovery housing and establish a recovery housing certification program based on national standards. And, you know, I, I am happy that the bill that has been introduced is stepping in the right direction. But from where I stand, I'd like to see more. I mean, I can't tell you how many probation officers and officers of the court and different faculties, you know, don't have a definitive answer on who the good operators are. Um, you know, over at VAR, you know, we, we, we certify recovery residences by good housekeeping standards. Those standards aren't to say, um, that that this organization doesn't have nice housing or that that there's something wrong with the operators it is to protect is to protect the individuals whom we serve and you know i personally from my standpoint i would have liked to seen this go further with the state you know and, and i know that this opinion may not be favorable on some of my counterparts but you know from where i sit we're not asking virginia to do anything that hasn't been done. I mean, it's been done, you know, I've, I've got research on over 10 states that actually named the, the NAR standards as the credentialing uh, body to, to you know, the state affiliates to, to you know, upkeep the standards, you know. And, 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 you know, the NAR standards were enacted in Congress June 13, 2018, H.R. 4684, that name NAR as the, the, the standards at which to uphold recovery residences, you know? So from where I stand, I think it's a step in the right direction, but, you know, when we talk about a crisis and we talk about, you know, you know, people's lives are at stake, you know, I feel like we need to go further and, 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 and make it very visible as to who the good operators are, who the bad players are and, and, and come together and, you know, do our job to the clients and whom we serve. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. So how does this, you know, cause of course we can sit here and, and from where we sit being so fully immersed in this, uh, this type of stuff, um, you know, we kind of know the lingo and, and, and are very understanding of what this means for us, but you know, for the general person in the public out there, how does this, um, how does this bill, um, how does it impact the the, the typical uh, person suffering from substance use disorder? And I think that uh, I think really what it does is it, through this certification, if you get the the seal of certification, the seal of a good housekeeping, this approval, it basically says to the consumer that you know this house meets a certain set of national standards, meaning that you're going to get a certain level of of attention or care or, you know, in a certain level of, of rules are going to be followed. Standards are going to be followed. Um, I think it's important to point out that NAR recognizes four levels of recovery residences, one through four, one being a completely democratically run recovery house, um, 
two being a, a little more of a hierarchy, so to speak, uh, three getting more into clinical services and four would be all, would be considered, you know, almost a, a, a full fledged treatment center. Um, so not all, so the levels will identify kind of, you know, which house may be appropriate to go to. But I also think that there's a there's kind of a misunderstanding about what recovery houses do. You know, most recovery houses range somewhere between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and fifty dollars a week um, to live in. Um, most of your standard level twos run somewhere in that area. Um uh, and for that price, what you can get is communal living, uh, drug testing, a safe and sober environment to be in. Um, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding of what sober houses are, are actually there to do sometimes. Um, so I think that this will kind of, you know, by standardizing it and having the levels laid out and listed, we're going to get a little bit more clarity on what can be expected when you go into one of these houses. Yeah, I think I think the most important thing is the just to echo what Anthony and David have said is to make sure that there are standards in place because a lot of people going into recovery, they're trying, they're trying to help a loved one and have no idea how to navigate, have no idea what standards to look at. And they just need to be able to make sure that they themselves or a loved one are getting into a place that is legit above board operates ethically and morally and will provide a rock solid program, um, giving them the utmost chance for success. Yeah, and so uh, I kind of want to. So first, I want to say that you know I know each each of you um, and Sarah, of course, uh, you know, and I want to thank you for the services that you provide to our community because, um, um, you know, it, it's such a need, and I and I and I don't want to get too controversial on this, but I think David had mentioned it, man. Like, um, I think that recovery residences meet the need meet. Um, so our 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 uh, local community service boards and mental health places are, are are just so overwhelmed, and I think that recovery residences kind of fill a gap um, for those people. And 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 so, um, you know, I, I'd say it's the most used and most underfunded. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, underfunded, not funded at all. Yeah, <laughs> right. Thing that we have, and so I know that you guys work really hard. We all work really hard to try to provide this to people to give them an opportunity. I'm just grateful that we have uh, providers like, like you all in our community to help, um, you know, meet those needs and, and save lives. Absolutely. So, um, so listen, uh, I'm going to move on real quick. Cause we got a couple other bills um, that we want to talk about, but I know one of the ones that, that, uh, that David and I had, had, just, had talked about earlier is, uh, you know, the eligibility for food stamps It's house bill one, uh, 1891. And that's, uh, and what is it, uh, 2231 and Senate Bill 1129. And that's about the el eligibility of food stamps, uh, making that available to individuals with drug charges. So um, if anybody wants to chime in and kind of talk about that, you know, I got it's, a lot to say. But Yeah, it's about time. You know, it's quite crazy that, um, you know, you could have somebody with a pretty serious violent charge get food stamps, but somebody that has a drug, drug distribution charge cannot. And I think the old school thought is if you sell drugs, you're going to sell your food stamps too. Um, but that's, that's ignorant. And, uh, you know, that's a bit crazy because somebody getting out of jail or uh, that is homeless, if they don't have food, a basic necessity of life, um, you're setting them up for failure off the bat. And so, um, you know, if we are going to have food stamps available, they absolutely need to be included so that they can have, you know, a fair shot, um, at least as far as that's concerned. 
And I know when folks come into our recovery house, uh, many of them are denied and it's very, very unfortunate. And it just provides one more obstacle um, among the tons that they have in our community. Uh, so we very much support this bill and really thank um, James Bagby Locke and all the others that have signed on to to get this bill where it is are already. Mike, I uh, I, I think it's absolutely absurd. You know, a lot a lot of most of the people I deal with that have distribution charges of drug, most of those guys were not kingpin at large. You know, large quantity drug dealers. Most most of these guys were actually small scale drug users who who got up trying to support a habit. Um, yeah. Even so, I, I, even if you're pounds and pounds of marijuana, you could still be a rapist and get this. You know, you you can be a convicted rapist freed, and you and you're eligible for food stamps if you ever sold drugs at any level. You're not eligible for food stamps. And again, we're kind of saying what Sarah was saying with the basic level of needs, and that ties back into our housing. You know, when you when you look at the at humankind and our basic necessities, you know, food and housing are right there at the beginning. Those are kind of two things that before any any kind of higher services or or, or things can be met, you know, we've got to have these things met. So uh, and we are constantly dealing with this stuff. People coming out of of jails and prisons trying to you know, push the reset button and get involved back again. And they can't take advantage of certain opportunities that, that are, again, they're for, available for even violent, convicted, you know, people. Um, and, and so, I, we, we, yeah, we at True Recovery and, and me personally support this bill 100% and would love to see, you know, love to see it move forward and, and go into law. Anthony, you got a stance on this bill? Yeah, I, um, I can pretty much echo what Sarah and David already said. I'm, I'm, I see it a lot in our housing. You know, for instance, you know, um, you know, we might scholarship somebody, you know, through a drug court program or something, and and give them an opportunity to come into our housing. And due to their specific type of charge, and like David and Sarah both alluded to, you know, ninety five percent of the time. They, they, they weren't a drug dealer in no shape, form, or fashion. They were just a user trying to support their own habit, and they got caught with the wrong amount or the wrong number of baggies or whatever the case may be. So then when they get into the house, they're already put at a disadvantage because we're going to try to help them find a job and secure some employment to start paying rent, but yet they have this gap of not even being able to feed themselves, you know? So, you, you know, we – we certainly need help in this area and, and we support the bill a hundred percent. And, you know, I hope it goes through because, you know, it, it's such a needed resource for people trying to rebuild their lives. You, you know, are we going to put people at a disadvantage or are we going to give them every advantage we can give them to reacclimate into society? Yeah, I agree. And what I'll add to that too is, you know, I know a lot of people, man, that have been on food stamps for years and years and years and have kind of milked the system. But one thing I can say when you take an individual that's been incarcerated and you provide them with the stepping stone, give them some recovery residence living, get them on food stamps. I'd say the majority of the people that I know that have been successful and maintain their recovery and have been able to, 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 to step off and no longer rely on the, the, um, you know, the SNAP benefits and the TANF or other, other uh, uh, social service based resources. Um, so they become less of a burden uh, you know, they, they may need to, to be a burden on that system um, initially, but they they do, they do not last on there for as long as as some people that that become kind of dependent upon that system. You know, 
I do. Sure. It goes back to what Sarah was saying in the beginning too, you know, when she prefaced the whole, uh, the whole podcast with, um, you know, it, it, they want to be, they want to appear to be tough on crime and really what it equates to, if you don't push this through is stupid on crime, uh, because you, you're going to push for more crime and, and the numbers, the numbers bear that out. So it's really, it's, it's a no brainer, right? Let, let's, let's give these people the same opportunity that we give everybody else and, and see if we can't get some better, you know, some better outcomes. Yeah, sure. I agree a hundred percent. I believe that this bill will solely help reduce a level of recidivism. Mm-hmm. Oh man. And that's, and that's, and that's, you know, that's one of the goals that we're all trying to do here. So, so moving on to the next bill, man. And I, this one I hold dear uh, to my heart because, you know, I, I, so this is a, a Senate bill 1013, which is, and basically what this does is it repeals, um, it repeals basically the requirement um, that drivers, uh, you know, be in a payment plan or that their, their license gets suspended as a result of failure to pay court fines and things associated with, with uh, convictions. And so, um, you know, I, I can speak personally for me, you know, I had to go to eight different jurisdictions to, to retain my license after 17 years of not having it. Um, and the reason I didn't have it for 17 years is because my license was taken away and suspended in all these different places that I had to go to eight different jurisdictions. Thank God I had a job that was allowing me to do that, to spend hours and upon hours a week for three months to go down there and handle all that stuff. But generally speaking, man, people that are, are trying to recover from substance use disorder who don't have any type of coping skills to deal with stressors, right, are trying to get their lives back in place and and, and have to navigate this type of system that's currently in place. And, and, and um, I mean, it, it, it can cause a lot of stress and it can cause also uh, a, a big burden on, 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 on that person, not to mention the burden on society that is, is caused because of that. You know, people, a lot of people can't even get gainful employment just based upon the fact that they don't have a license. I mean, that's one of the main questions that they ask when you go get a license. And so, I mean, when you go get a job and so, um, you know, what is everybody's thoughts on, on this bill? I, I'll go back to, I'll go back to again, it, it, you know, you want to be smart on crime. This is another, let's be dumb on crime. You can't, you can't pay bills and you can't pay your fines. Let's suspend your license and take every opportunity you had to get a job further than five minutes from your house away from you. So that, you know, so we're sure that we can lock you back up and spend another $135 a day on you in jail rather than trying to see you there. I also think that this law should have other stuff tacked onto it. I, I, I mean, if you want my, my honest opinion, I think we should get away for suspending driver's licenses for anything other than driving charges. You know, if you're not driving while intoxicated or you're not a habitual offender uh, uh, with driving charges, I don't think your license should be suspended at all. You know, we've got people getting caught with, you know, minuscule amounts of marijuana, one or two uh, prescription pain pills that don't belong to them. And we're suspending their license. You know, we're, we're, we're giving them five years, five years suspended. We're suspending the license and, and, and I'm wondering why they're not regaining or getting back on top of life again. I just, you know, it blows my mind. Dumb on crime. Yeah, I, I agree 100 percent with David. I can speak from my personal experience. I have never had a driving conviction associated with any um, crimes I was incarcerated for. And yet when I got out of incarceration, it took me 18 months to get my driver's license back. I had to hire a lawyer. My courts were out of town. I mean, it, it was quite a, a challenge for me to you know, retain my driver's license. And, you know, I can see clearly that, you know, 
And I agree with David 100 percent. I mean, you, you know, licenses are getting suspended for things that have nothing to do with driving. And, and it just puts people at such a disadvantage. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we look at why recidivism rates are high, I mean, I've had people in my housing who were doing well get caught because they they had such a need to try to get their lives back on track that it was so far fetched for them to get a license back that they drove illegally and were reincarcerated behind that you know and we're talking about people who were doing well in their recovery who were taking steps forward and the ability to not get a job because they couldn't drive a lot of them are in construction work and a lot of companies you're right ryan the first thing they ask is do you have a driver's license it doesn't matter if they have a car or not if they simply have a license they can be of a higher value to the company sarah what you got i completely agree i mean i think we need to punish or not punish, but consequences need to fit the crime. Right. I feel like as parents, that's something that we're taught early on, give your children consequences that fit what they do, not something totally opposite so that they could connect the two. And so, you know, it does such a disservice to automatically, which I don't think that a lot of people realize that people's license are automatically suspended once all of this happens. And as everyone has said, it's a disservice. It has nothing to do with, what they're being charged with. They don't learn a lesson from it. And the number of people that are currently clogging our system, costing us taxpayer dollars at the cost of $35,000 a year that, that are behind bars for simply driving on a suspended license because they're going to work or they're taking their kid to a, a, you know, a baseball practice, the numbers are so incredibly high. Um, and so people are just going to have a much, much better chance of reintegrating and being successful and getting back on their feet if, if this common sense piece of legislation finally goes through. Right. And so I would say this, too. So, so what, do you, what, do you, what would you guys say to the person that's fighting this bill, right, that says, OK, because I think I read somewhere where uh, the state of Virginia uh, gets about $10 million or maybe even more than that uh, uh, annually based upon uh, people paying their fines. So, so, so what would be your rebuttal to that argument, that if we, if we put this bill into place, what, what incentive do people have to pay these fines? Well, I, I mean, I'm going to tell you this, Ryan, that, uh, you know, that's exactly why they suspend them, is because it's about money. They want to collect the money from these fines and, and whatever it may go to. Now, at the end of this bill, I'm reading that it says the provisions of the bill are contingent upon funding in a general appropriation act. Right. So I guess that means that if they're willing to kind of supplement that uh, that funding uh, stream for the repayments of the fines, so kind of because I'm sure that the the courts or whoever uh, or, or the state has allotted funds that are available based upon uh, in the budget based upon what they receive annually. Exactly. Right. Well, I think that we also need to look at the bigger picture here because let's be honest, the people that are driving on a suspended license and because they're not paying, that money is not being collected anyway. So if they start driving legally, it's gonna the roads are going to be safer. They're going to be driving more, which means they're going to be paying for gas. Virginia has a very high um, gas tax that we all pay at the pump. They're going to be purchasing cars. They're going to be going to work. So we're actually probably going to come out making more money if this goes through than losing money. And so I think that losing money argument comes from people who are just so stubborn and hardheaded and and don't want to see people that have criminal convictions do anything good with their life. Um, they're the same people that, you know, try to stunt the system any way that you look at it, close the doors every which way. 
Um, but I think if you look at the bigger picture, you're going to see actually revenues increase by implementing this. Agreed. Agreed. So, a simple agree, David. Let's, I mean, you know, taxpaying, working, buying cars, spending money in the market. Like, you know, there's, there's a great value to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. I agree, man. Um, and so I guess there's, there's, there's one more bill that, that uh, Sarah had pointed out that, that I think we need to talk about too. And once again, I just wanted to remind, you know, anybody listening that, um, you know, when I started this podcast off, we were talking about, you know, pretty much all of these bills that we've discussed today are basically they, 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 they serve to kind of like mitigate disenfranchisement of people with crimes and, and, um, you know, that suffer with substance use disorder issues, man. And because, you know, that contributes so deeply to, um, to, to recidivating, you know, back into, into incarceration or, or relapse, um, you know, that, that, you know, if we're ever going to see any meaningful, sustainable, uh, long-term uh, massive change, you mm -hmm. know, it's going to take um, a, a, a systemic change, you know, from, from, from many different angles instead of, you know, just providing services at the ground level like we do. There needs to be uh, some, some, some big changes at, at, at how we deal with these laws and everything else. So I just wanted to remind everybody about that. And that's why we're discussing this today mm -hmm. is to kind of highlight those things because, uh, you know, all of us do this work in the community, but advocacy um, and, 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 and influence and policy are, are like some of the biggest things that we all have a passion for. So, and Ryan, I will add real quickly to that. Uh, there are thousands, literally thousands of bills that go up in front of the general assembly every year. And each year they have either 45 or 60 days to review it. That's a lot. There is literally not enough hours in the day to review every single piece. And so often legislators will go by what they know and what they know is what people tell them. Please vote for this. Please don't vote for that. So if the anti, you know, the, the people on the other side are the only ones lobbying and advocating on behalf um, of a bill or against a bill, that's how legislators are going to vote. And so for people that don't think that their voice matters, it absolutely does. I've worked at the General Assembly for a couple of sessions. Um, so I know for a fact that people's voices are heard. And that is often how these, these elected officials make their decisions. All right. So check this out, guys. This last bill we're going to talk about, then I will uh, we'll cut this, cut this, uh, cut y'all loose. But um, it's House Bill 1861. And this is sponsored by McQueen and Bagby. Uh, is about the expungement of records for misdemeanors and felonies after eight years of being off papers and having no further contact with the law. So um, what, do, what do you guys think about this one and, and what's your experience with, you know, having any type of uh, record that needs expunging? Well, I'll say this is a long shot for Virginia to even introduce this bill, let alone pass it. Um, but it's bills like this that will need to be uh, most likely introduced time and time and time again before they're passed. Um, I, I hope like heck it's passed this year, but, um, you know, folks that are following this one, don't be discouraged if it hadn't, because it's a little, it's a little liberal leaning for Virginia in the way that, uh, legislation typically goes, but, um, you know, why not? Why after eight years of proven record of proven behavior, why would we continue to, um, want to punish folks that have proven that they have 
made some mistakes in their past, but have absolutely changed. I think once again, that this is a no brainer um, and, and would really help folks get to the next level if their record was able to be expunged. I, 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 I love this bill so much and maybe it's because I have felony records. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I, but I've often thought about, you know, how Virginia doesn't have an expungement process. I mean, really in Virginia, the only way to get an expungement is if you were charged with something and it was no process or never, or never, you know, never convicted of, you can have an expunge that you were charged. You can never have an expungement, which means that basically you are defined by something you did for the rest of your life. Um, you know, I think that we we as people in recovery are, are very familiar. We as people that work with people in recovery and those that are reentering society, formerly incarcerated people, work with those guys that we, we, you know, we see miracles all the time. And we see people that have certainly turned the page and have gotten under control of their addictions and, and even some of their behaviors. Um, and, and, and really we need to, we need to encourage this. We need to be smart on community. We need to be smart on society. And this is just, it, it really is a, um, it's a smart bill. It would, it would help. I, you know, we have, we have moved in the right direction recently with, you know, some people's, uh, rights being automatically reinstated. I've recently <clears throat> was reinstated to, uh, be able to bear a firearm, uh, which I don't know if I even want to buy a gun, but, I, but I'm a fully restored citizen. Um, and then the next natural, you know, action would be to try to have an expungement. Unfortunately, as the law sit in Virginia today, you know, I can't have my record expunged. So I, you know, I would support this just, I don't think it affects me professionally right now. Um, but I know that it affects many, many, many people mm -hmm. in a negative way. Yeah, and I'll say I'll say this, man. I don't know if it necessarily affects me professionally, but it affects my life. You know, I, I have, you know, despite all of the things that that you know, just like you guys have done. You know, we've all done a lot of work in the community to not only restore our own lives, but to help contribute to helping other people restore theirs. You know, and this has been a life mission of mine. Um, you know, since I've been you know on this journey, and and uh, you know, God willing, I'll have four years clean coming up, and haven't had a felony in ten years, and uh, but yet. You know, when I go to, um, you know, get my gun rights restored or I go to, to 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 do certain things, man, my record, you know, they look at my record and they see, you know, they see what they see, you know. And it's like, um, you know, despite all the all the positive things that I've done, you know, some some negative stuff that I've done 10 years ago. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll and i bring this up real quick, too, before I, you know, um, get some feedback from from uh, from Anthony. But, um, you know, I was stopped one time, man, like. I don't know, maybe about six years ago by the police. And, um, you know, I guess I fit the description of somebody that was, that was uh, distributing narcotics, apparently. Now, mind you, at this time, <laughs> this is a funny story, by the way. I didn't have a phone. I, I was living in a recovery house that I had just got into. I didn't have a phone. I didn't even have a wallet or an ID. I didn't have money. I had literally nothing in my pockets. But because when the policeman pulled up my record, and saw that I had a distribution charge, a federal distribution charge from 2001. Now this was in the 2012 or something like that, that he was like, they did not believe the fact that I was not the person that was doing this, harassed me, kicked me off the property, told me I'd be trespassing if I ever came back, you know? And so, um, you know, 
despite all the evidence showing that, you know, that I wasn't doing this, I mean, I, you know, they, just based upon my record, they said, don't you think it's funny that you, that you're a convicted uh, drug distributor, which that's a whole nother issue. Cause like you said, David, it wasn't even like what it sounded like, but, um, but you know, they, 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 they completely profiled me based upon that, mm. you know? So, um, so anyway, what's your experience with this, Anthony? I'm a big fan of it. Um, I know for me personally, um, you know, even though it may not affect me today, I know that there are certain jobs and certain things to where I would need an expunged record in order to even apply or be a candidate for. And, and what I mean by that is, is that I have some younger men and women in the houses who are convicted felons and they're 18 and 19 years old and they're getting a year and two clean. So if they stay the course, by the time they're 30, they could have an expunged record. What that means is, is that if you work for a big construction company and you can't pass a background check, especially to go on a federal base or something of that nature, that, that, that they can't fulfill that task. So, you know, I see the long-term benefits of this for, especially for, for, for people like us who are in recovery, who have put all this work in to rebuild our lives. I, I feel it gives us, you know, an advantage for our future. All right. So I wanted to say thank you, man. It's been a very intriguing conversation, um, you know, talking to everybody. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful to be able to have uh, the three of you on the show. And, um, you know, before but before we get out of here, uh, I just want to give you I know you guys are, like I said before, you know, part of this movement, uh, you know, this grassroots movement to, to kind of help, you know, people that suffer from substance use disorder and, 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 and uh, you know, criminal justice issues. Uh, incarceration. So um, what you got going on at True Recovery, David? Anything you want to talk about before we get off of here? Uh, well, briefly, well, one thing I would like to say before getting off of here is that if you're listening to this and you haven't been involved, you know, reach out to those advocates, reach out to me, reach out to Sarah, reach out to Ryan, reach out to Anthony, get involved, call your delegates, find out what's on the table, help us make some, you know, smart decisions and get some smart legislation passed. Uh, with True Recovery, we are now managing 144 beds, uh, recovery beds in the metropolitan area. Um, we're excited about that. We, and we do have some projects that we're not really ready to reveal quite yet, um, but more will be revealed. So, you know, stay tuned to us. Thank you. Okay. And, and what you got? First off, I'd like to say thank you to David and Sarah and yourself, Ryan. It's been a pleasure being on here with you um, over at the War Foundation. Um, we don't have any new news to report. Um, you know, we, we are just continuing in our mission to help people. But as a whole, you know, I'd like the community to know that, you know, over at VAR, the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences, we're a nonprofit and we need the help of the community. You know, this is something that five operators and 10 about this thing can, you, you know, we need a lot of help, you know, because we need support and, um, you know, we need for this to be something that everybody gets involved in. I mean, I can't tell you how many people who know somebody who knows somebody or have directly been affected by the disease of addiction. You know, this is something that's a family disease. It's not an individual disease and, and all the people affected, you know, there are ways to get involved and be supportive and, um, you know, we would just like to ask everybody to stand up with us and help us in this fight. All right. Well, uh, before I give it over to Sarah, um, 
you know, I, I just want to, want to congratulate you, Anthony, on your, your, uh, your big milestone in recovery, man. And, um, you know, I know that, you know, tonight you'll be, uh, you know, getting your four year, uh, medallion. And, um, you know, I just, you know, I, I want you to know that you've been an inspiration to me and, and a lot of others, uh, you know, in this area, um, and have helped, you know, set the example of, of what breaking free from the bondage of, of, of the things that we deal with looks like. So, um, you know, congratulations once again, man. And thank you for just being such a strong, strong presence, uh, in the community, uh, you know, more so with action than with words, man. And, you know, and I love that. So, so thank you. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate it dearly, my friend. Congratulations, Anthony. Well, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Yeah, congratulations, Ed. Thanks, David. Um, so I guess to wrap things up for anybody who wants to learn more, as David said, um, you know, we're all tagged in this on Facebook. And so you are more than welcome to reach out to any of us. We do, we have joined forces and are having an advocacy day at the General Assembly on Valentine's Day. So it's an easy day to remember. Valentine's Day is the only day that the General Assembly, uh, or the only holiday during the General Assembly. So we picked that day because it is a fun day to be down there. The legislators go all out in decorating. And so it's just a real fun day. But um, we will be um, asking legislators to support the bills that we have discussed today, as well as several others. You'll see um, information about all of that on our Facebook prior to us going down there. So we hope that you will join us on the 14th at the General Assembly from 9 to 1. Um, more information is on Real Life's Facebook page under Real Life Community Center um, about that day and how to be involved to just come down and just ask, ask the legislators who are making these decisions to vote in favor of these bills that will have an absolutely amazing impact on many of our citizens here in the Commonwealth. All right. So listen, man, thank you guys again for coming out. Um, I really appreciate you. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing y'all uh, as we continue to, to travel this journey of, uh, you know, help, helping the people in our community. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Brian. Here at the Real Life Community Center, our mission is to assist individuals who have been impacted by incarceration, homelessness, who are battling addiction to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community to hinder their prosperity and their ability to have a thriving future. Our vision is to walk alongside our clients, to see them grow into prosperous and thriving life while highlighting the barriers associated with those exiting incarceration and overcoming addiction in order to reduce the negative stigmas and stereotypes. Everyday men and women looking for second chances and redemption walk through our doors. They are seeking hope, motivation, and skills in order to make that change. Through community partnerships and financial investments, Real Life is able to provide clients specifically with what they need. Intense case management, an expected mother's program, recovery housing or housing referrals, mental health services, classes and groups, job preparation and placement, transportation assistance, substance use disorder support, educational opportunities, a clothing closet, a computer lab, and more. And most important, unconditional love and support. All donations directly support providing services to further our mission of assisting individuals who have been impacted by incarceration or homelessness or those battling a substance use disorder to overcome barriers and obstacles faced within the community that hinder their prosperity and ability to have a thriving future. 
If you would like to donate to Real Life Community Center, you can donate on our webpage, www.reallifeprogram.org backslash donate. Or you can donate directly through the anchor.fm app or listening platform. Don't miss the McShin Foundation's second annual A Night for Scott this Saturday at the Salisbury Country Club. Hi, I'm Jill Chickowitz, Scott's twin sister. Two years ago, my brother tragically lost his life to an accidental overdose. But through the Scott Zabrowski Scholarship Fund, his big heart lives on. Join me this Saturday for a delicious dinner, live entertainment, a silent and live auction, and incredible guest speakers at A Night for Scott. Get your tickets today at eventbrite.com and search A Night for Scott. Together, we can end the stigma and fight for tomorrow.